0: Many of you will be able to identify with this and this question I have for you. Do you remember what it was like to anticipate the arrival of your firstborn child? Many of you can identify with this. For some, it's been a long time, right? For some of us, it was a long time ago. We have a few families in our fellowship who have newborn babies in their homes, so this is uh, not hard for them to remember. It's it's, a... recent for them to maybe not have their firstborn, but to have a newborn in the home to anticipate the arrival of that newborn baby. So it shouldn't be too much of a stretch for them to think about this. But for the rest of us it's it may have been a while since we've prepared for that firstborn child. You remember that? You remember what that was like? As you started thinking about, oh no, I'm a parent I've got a baby coming in just a few short months. The time will fly by and we'll be here before we know it. Did the time fly by for you? It didn't for us. I remember our firstborn over 17 years ago. We were anxiously awaiting for the arrival of our firstborn child. And uh, it was a time, it seemed like it was going to take forever. That's one of the things I think about your firstborn. It seems like that child will never get there. And you wait, and you wait, I know Carolyn uh, was very busy during those months as the mom you know as a mom Carolyn ba- carrying a baby she she was snatching up everything she could find to read to saturate her mind with what the responsibilities of a mother are i 'm so thankful she didn 't bring any books about how to how to be a dad she didn 't do that, but she did she did find all kinds of books about how to be a mom and, and how to care for that newborn baby and and to to prepare for the arrival of that baby, how to care for her own health, how to care for the health of the baby while she was carrying the baby, how to care for the baby's health after the baby was born. As you can see, Kevin's back there in the sound room. He survived all these years. And uh, she did pretty good, I think. He's tall and strong and healthy, and he can really split wood and haul furniture. His grandparents were thankful for that a couple weeks ago. She did good. She read, she studied, she was ready, she was anxious, but my word, the anticipation of waiting for that firstborn child. Now, when you have eight children, I'm sorry, Josiah's not here, thank goodness. I, you know, When you get to your eighth child, you just don't anticipate the arrival of that eighth child like you did the first one. You're like, okay, well, nine months. All right, time will fly by. And it does. Nine months flies by when you're on your eighth child. But when you're on your first child, that nine months is forever. And we anticipate the arrival of our firstborn child. And we prepared and we went and we bought furniture and we bought bottles and diapers and I don't even remember all the stuff we bought. And we made preparations. We planned for our livelihood because when we found out we were expecting, Carolyn and I were both working and we had committed ourselves to raising our children at home and Carolyn was going to stay home with our baby when he was born. And and so we said, you're going to quit working and that's half of our income. Now what are we going to do? We're going to have to trust the Lord. So we made plans for that and began to pray about how the Lord was going to provide for our needs. And and we prayed and planned and we prayed about wisdom to raise our child for God. And and we really and truly spent a lot of time and energy putting into just the anticipation, just the waiting for that newborn baby that would come into our homes. And one of the things that moms do, moms, you you identify with this, a, a couple of weeks ahead of time when you realize you're really close, you, you start packing your bags, don't you? Because you know that any time that water could break, you know, or you start feeling those contractions and you say, it's time to go, let's go. For our last five children, I think for our last four children, I think they were four, I can't keep track of where they were born. Half of them were born in Indiana and we lived in Michigan at the time. We had this wonderful Christian doctor that we'd like to go to that he was an hour away. And so I would say, Carolyn, please, 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 if you just think you're going to have the baby, just tell me so I can just load you in a car and start driving like a maniac an hour south. Because we were an hour from the hospital. And so she packed her bags. And moms, you did this, right? You packed your bags. And I was responsible for make sure there's gas in the car. I did that. Keep gas in the car. Keep that tank full, right? And then you get to the hospital. And it's all over then. Once you get to the hospital, there's no more waiting. Wrong. There's lots of waiting at the hospital. If you're like us, you get there several hours ahead of time because you're afraid you're going to have the baby on the road so you leave really early. And you get there and it's hours for some of us. Jenny, you said you, your baby came really quick, right? A few weeks, ago, just a couple months, a few, few months ago, right? And so for you, good for you, you had your baby really quick. That wasn't true for us. When we got to the hospital, it was like hours of waiting. I was, like, oh man, this is gonna take forever, you know. Snickers bars in my pockets and Mountain Dews, and you know, and Carolyn's over there suffering, and I'm just tired because you know, angry because this chair is like a torture rack and I can't sleep in it. It was hours and hours of anxious waiting for our babies to come, right? And then those contractions started to get closer and closer together, and that's when you realize it could be any moment now. It could be any moment those contractions get closer and closer. Carolyn hated this. Ladies, you'll hate me too when I tell you about this. They would put this monitor on the mom when she's having those contractions, and if you're me, you can stand and you can watch the monitor, and you can see the contraction coming before she knows it. And the needle goes psh, up, and you go, whoa, that's going to be a doozy. And she would hate it when I did that. I said, ooh, can you feel that one? And she'd go, no. Oh, you know, then she'd feel it, and she'd be angry at me for saying, oh, that's going to be a big one. I've not seen one off the scale that size yet. And so I could see, and we're anticipating these contractions getting close. Look, they're only five minutes apart. Here's, it's about five. Okay, you'll be coming in about four minutes now, you know, and she would hate me for that. But then that baby would come. And it would seem like, what happened to those nine months? What happened to all that anticipation? What happened to all that waiting and preparation? That's behind us. We forget all about that, don't we? We've got our baby. And there's all this anticipation that builds up to this moment in time when you have that newborn baby in your arms. Many of us know what that's like, don't we? To anticipate that firstborn, maybe to anticipate each of your children as they came into the world, to prepare for them and to wait patiently and what seemed like an eternity when the parents would call and say, Hey, uh, daughter or son, is that baby there yet? You know, is it going to come anytime soon? It's like, quit bugging me. The baby's coming. We don't know when. Or the grandparents would call, Is it, that baby there yet? The anticipation takes forever, but there's all this preparation and this excitement goes to it. And then, Finally, when the day arrives, you forget all about the preparation, don't you? Many of us know what it is to properly live in anticipation. We know when a parent is properly preparing for their newborn baby, right? As believers, as believers though, there are some identifying characteristics for believers who are properly living in anticipation of the return of Christ. As as important as your firstborn was, I'm sorry to tell you... I'm not sorry to tell you this because it's very true. That firstborn is nothing in comparison to the arrival of Christ. Jesus Christ will come again someday. And you need to anticipate that. As much as we anticipate that firstborn coming into our family, we need to anticipate even more so, a thousand times so, the arrival of Christ and the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. We. We find it hard to live that way though, don't we? Why is that? Because it's not a time when somebody says, well, in nine months Christ is going to come, get ready. Or in nine minutes, or in nine weeks, or in nine days. We don't have anybody to tell us that. The Word says Christ could return at any moment and be ready. You don't want to be ashamed on that day. You don't want to shrink from Him in shame, says First John, right? We've been studying there. I want you to go with me to First John chapter 2. We return to our passage in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3 today as we continue our look at the marks of the believer who is properly anticipating the imminent return of Christ. And just like we say, you know, I I can tell a good parent when I see one because they're preparing for that newborn baby that's going to be there at any time. We ought to be able to say, you know what? A believer who is properly anticipating the return of Christ, we can tell by the way they're living. And you ought to be able to know by looking at your own life, and I'm going to ask you to look at your own life. I'm not asking you to compare your neighbor's life to your own or your neighbor's life to the Word. I want you to look at your own life as we think about this passage together again this morning because there are some identifying characteristics of believers who are properly anticipating the return of Christ. And there are some marks that will be true of you if you are anxiously awaiting the imminent return of Christ. Let's look together. 1 John chapter 2. And verse 28. I'm going to start with verse 28 and read through chapter 3, verse 3, because this is really one unit of thought, one paragraph. Follow along with me as I read from the English Standard Version, verse 28 in chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. In chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we began looking at this unit of text here, these verses, these five verses in chapter 2, verses 28 through 3, uh, verse 3, A few weeks ago, we began to note that believers are to live as if Christ could return at any moment because He could. The Bible tells us to be ready. And what are the characteristics of those believers who are properly living in in anticipation of the return of Christ? What does it look like for a believer to properly anticipate the return of Christ? Number one... I'm just going to give you a quick refresher here from a few weeks ago. Number one, believers who live in anticipation of Christ's return, abide in Him. Look at chapter 2, verse 28 again. And now, little children, abide in Him. Which means that believers who properly anticipate the return of Christ cling to Christ. They don't cling to earthly things. We We don't hang our life on the things on this earth. We hang our things on... Godly things on heavenly things. We cling to Christ, not the temporal things of this world and not the ungodly things of this world. Believers who abide in Christ, abide in Him, they seek to faithfully serve Christ. They seek to faithfully serve Him day in and day out. And they seek to saturate their heart and their mind and their soul with God's Word, making Christ their focal point and their example in life. That's what it means to abide in Him. Jesus Christ is your example. Jesus Christ is your focal point. He is your guide. He is your teacher. And His Word dwells in you. Number two, believers who live in anticipation of Christ's return, also, they live with confidence. They live with confidence. Look at chapter 2, verse 28 again, where it says, "...so that when He appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. See, believers who live in anticipation of Christ's return, who are truly living for Christ and make Jesus Christ their focal point and let God's Word saturate their heart, soul, and mind and saturate their thinking and shape their living, they live with confidence. Confidence. Because those who stay their mind and their heart and their soul on Christ, who keep themselves in God's Word and faithfully obey and serve Him, they can have confidence that as they await the return of Christ, they will not be ashamed when He appears. And they will have no need to be ashamed on the day of the Lord's coming. But I want you to note that this is not a self-confidence. Be very careful that you don't think that this is a self-confidence. Self-confidence. Because this is not self-confidence. This is confidence in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you and me on the cross by His sacrifice for our sins. Taking away our sin and His ever-present working in us through the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So this is confidence that we live for Him. Confidence that we won't be ashamed when He appears because we are abiding in Christ. And it is His work that He works in us. Not of our own strength and then thirdly believers who live in anticipation of Christ's return they practice righteousness that's the natural outcome of the one who abides in Christ and lives with confidence it's a practice of righteousness look at verse 29 again where he says john says if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him believers who live in anticipation of the return of Christ, practice righteousness. First John chapter 2, if we were to go back and look at verse 14, you'd see that we're reminded that believers are strong for overcoming the evil one when the Word of God abides in them. And our reading of and obedience to God's Word will result in the practice of righteousness. It's not just reading, it's obeying, right? And that means we will practice righteousness. Fourthly, number four, believers who live in anticipation of Christ's return, they hope in the love of God. They hope in the love of God. And we've seen wonderful blessings here in chapter 3, verse 1, and we've spent quite a bit of time here because this is very important for you and me to get this picture right in our minds that we need to hope in the love of God for us because it is astounding the truths that we see in His Word about His love for us chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And we hope in the love of God for us because we can see it. It says right at the beginning, See? We can see it. We can behold it. We can see it demonstrated in the actions of Christ on our behalf on the cross. And we can see and take in how and know the love of God for us in His Word. His Word has been given to us so that we can see the love of God there displayed for us in all its beauty and glory. And we can see and take it in and know it as we read God's Word, and we can also hope in the love of God because as as chapter 3, verse 1 says, it is given to us. You need to realize that God's love for you is not earned. You cannot and will never earn God's love. It is a gift. It is a gift. It is given to us, which reminds us, doesn't it, of God's grace. Because who among us deserves to be given the love of God? None of us. That is a measure of God's grace. We cannot earn His love. It is a gift. We also hope in the love of God because we are called God's children. He calls us and He names us as His own. And He says, you are my child. I call you my adopted sons, my adopted daughters. And not only are we called His children... But we're reminded here also in in verse 1 that we are God's children. We are God's children, which brings us to the end of verse 1 where we're reminded that the world does not see us that way. You realize the world does not see you as a child of God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've confessed your sin and believed in Jesus, He has given you His Holy Spirit and He has called you His child and He has made you His own you realize the the world doesn't get that? The world doesn't see you that way? Look at chapter 3, verse 1 again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then at the beginning of verse 2, it it reemphasizes that point. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now, but the world doesn't see us that way. Look at the end of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Here's our fifth identifying characteristic of a believer who properly lives in anticipation of the return of Christ. And it's that they hope in the love of God, not in the love of the world. A believer who really is truly anticipating the return of Christ hopes in God's love for them, not in the world's love for them. Now, how does the world see believers? John says in chapter 3, verse 1, that the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now, how is it the world doesn't know believers? Well, to answer that, let's think about what's true of believers that's not true of unbelievers. We can do that by just backing up to the beginning of verse 1. Let's look at the beginning of verse 1 again. First, think about the love the Father has given to believers. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? You see it? You behold it? Have you taken it in? Do you understand the depths of God's love for you and the love that He has given you? Believers have a very special love from the Father that adopts His enemies. Think about it. This defines God's love for us. A very special love comes toward us from the Father that adopts us, his enemies, as his children. Believers have this special love from the Father that adopts his enemies and calls them his children. That is very unusual in the the eyes of the world. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 puts it this way Romans 8, verses 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, You see, this kind of love that we're talking about, that the Father has given to us, that we would be His children, His heirs and heirs with Christ, that is an otherworldly love. That is the kind of love that is from outer space. If you were to ask the, the, your neighbors about this kind of love, they go, that's not natural, that doesn't happen. Nobody loves like that. And you might say, yeah, that's true. Nobody but Christ. Nobody but God in in the example of Jesus Christ for us. That is a, a foreign kind of love to unbelievers. Unbelievers don't know this kind of love. And the world can't understand how God would call His enemies His children. We just don't naturally do that, do we? Those who are our enemies, we want to be done with them. We want to eliminate them. We want to get them in their place and teach them a lesson, right? God says, I'll teach you a lesson. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to make you my daughter. I'm going to make you my son. I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to call you my child. I'm going to adopt you into my family. You're going to be an heir with me, an heir with Christ. That is out of this world, isn't it? But that's just just what he did when he sent his son to be sacrificed for our sins, isn't it? In John chapter one, verse twelve, in the Gospel of John chapter one, verse twelve, says that to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, another gift. He gave the right to become children of God. Note also that not only are believers called God's children, but we are God's children, all because of Christ. How are we different from those who are unbelievers? We're God's child. Because of Christ. And know too that those who have confessed their sin and believed in Jesus as Savior now have, have, res, have residing in them the Holy Spirit. Have you ever stopped to realize that the world doesn't understand that? The world does not understand that you have God the Holy Spirit living in your soul if you're God's child. And if the world can't know us because they don't understand the kind of love the Father has given us, they certainly don't understand that God's Spirit lives in our soul and is working in us and growing us in Christ's likeness, as Galatians chapter five verses twenty two and twenty three notes. The way we we grow by the Spirit's work in us is by putting on the fruit of the Spirit, which is right love and joy and peace and patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control. The world doesn't get that. You know, the world ought to see it. You realize that the world ought to see the fruit of the Spirit in us. They may not be able to name it. They may not. They certainly wouldn't call it the fruit of the Spirit. They might say, you're a good person. If they see the fruit of the Spirit in you, the world ought to see the fruit of the Spirit in us. But they won't understand that that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's a work of God the Holy Spirit in us. That is not in and of ourselves. That's why we need to be careful. When somebody says to you and me, wow, that's a really good thing you did. There's an opportunity to give the glory to God. You might just say, you know what? If it was up to me, I probably wouldn't have done that, but that's me being obedient to God. And God tells me to do this and His Word makes it very clear how I'm to live and, and I'm and I'm able to do that because the Holy Spirit's working in me. Now you may not understand that, you know, but I don't want to make sure I want to make sure I don't take credit for something that's really not mine to take credit for it. I want to give God glory for that. And you know, people in the world go, huh? <laughs> but give God the glory, right? Take the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and giving God the glory and not taking it for yourself. The world ought to see the fruit of the Spirit in us, but they won't understand where it's coming from, would they? This failure to be known by the world, this failure to understand and be understood by the the world ought not dishearten or concern or surprise us. you realize you ought not lose heart because the world doesn't get you? Don't, Don't lose heart over that. Don't be discouraged by that. Just as John says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. You have to stop and realize that you weren't the first one that they didn't know. We ought not be surprised or disheartened by this. Jesus also warned us of this in the Gospel of John, chapter 15 and verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, the world doesn't know us. But it didn't know Jesus either. And we know this to be true from the Scriptures. Listen to these passages from the Gospel of John that point to to how even those who saw Jesus didn't know Him. For example, John chapter 1 verse 10 says of Jesus, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. John chapter 8 verse 19 shares this statement from Jesus Himself, who said, They said to Him, therefore, Jesus says, Where is your Father? Jesus answered them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus also points to the world's hatred of him, which indicated their their failure to know him, when he says in John chapter fifteen and verse twenty four, "If I had not done among uh, among them the works that that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father." And then there's this statement from Jesus in John chapter sixteen and verse three. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And then one more. There, uh, there were those. Remember, there were those in the crowd who said, "Crucify him!" Right? They shouted, "Crucify him! Be done with him! Crucify him!" And certainly, they didn't know him because ultimately, they did crucify him. And then the words of Jesus from the cross make it very clear that the world does not know him. Luke twenty-three thirty-four. Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Know this, that if the world doesn't know Jesus, they definitely aren't going to know us. If the world doesn't get Jesus, they're definitely not going to get us. They don't understand Jesus, they're not going to understand us. But that's all right. Don't lose heart. In spite of the things that they didn't get about Jesus, He still came and gave Himself for those who would believe in Him, didn't He? Jesus allowed Himself to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. If they didn't know who Jesus was, they won't know who you are either, and they won't know who I am either, which is why we hope in the love of God and not in the love of the world, right? That's why our hope is in the love of God. We don't hang on, we don't cling to the love of the world for us or the lack of the love of the world or understanding of the world for us. We live in the hope of who we are in Christ. We live in the hope of who we are now because of the love of God for us. And Psalm 146, verse 5 says that blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob. Where's your help? You need to know that your help is in the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord is God. That's where your hope ought to be founded in the love of God for you. So believers who properly live in anticipation of the Lord's return don't hope in the love of the world for them. They hope in the love of God. You take great strength and hope and encouragement in the love of God for you today. So how should knowing this cause us to live today? How should knowing this cause us to to look at today and say, okay, so how do I live today now that I know this? We ought to take heart. We ought not be discouraged. We ought not lose hope. Don't lose heart because of the way the world sees you, but rejoice that you are privileged to serve Christ. You know that you are privileged to serve your risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The world doesn't understand who you are in Christ, but don't hope in the love of the world. Hope in the love of God. And to see us, to help us see as we. Think about how we live today. I want you to look at a passage with me to help us see and understand how we ought to live today. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 5, just for a moment, to help us see how we ought to live today. We have this wonderful example in Acts chapter 5. We ought to be encouraged and take heart and hope in the love of God. We have this vivid illustration here in Acts chapter 5 of how we should respond when misunderstood and mistreated and even persecuted for the name of Christ as you turn to acts chapter 5 i want you to know that the church is just a baby it's just in its infancy in acts chapter 5 and and there's quite a stir and many people are coming taking note from all over and bringing their sick and afflicted to be healed but but there are these guys called the sadducees and and i'll just tell you they were sad you see all right i'll just help you remember that these were sad guys right <laughs> because they didn't know christ they weren't living for him they were religious and all but they were sad You see? That's just my little joke there. Not original with me. I don't know where that came from. And they were jealous. The Scriptures remind us that they were jealous. They were jealous of all the attention that the apostles were getting that was being directed to the newborn church and the apostles and all the things that were happening and going on. And so they, they went and got together and sent out officials and arrested the apostles and dragged them in. I want you to know what follows in Acts chapter 5. And look at verse 27 as I read. Acts chapter 5 and verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, talking about the name of Jesus Christ. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while and verse 35 says and he said to them men of Israel take care that you are uh, what you are about to do with these men for before these days Judas rose up claiming to be somebody and and a number of men about 400 joined him he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing after him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And here's a guy who almost gets it. The rest of them, they don't have a clue who these apostles are. They don't know what's going on inside of them, that the Holy Spirit is working in them, right? And so they took his advice, and verse 40 says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And look at verses 40 and 41, because here's here's a profound thing, and here's, here's what ought to teach us this morning and how we respond when the world doesn't get us. Verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. How do you like that? How do you like the way they responded to persecution, severe persecution? They were beaten and threatened. And so I say to you, we respond to the world not getting us, which is fairly minor in comparison to being beat. We respond to hardship even, and even persecution, whether it be verbal or physical. We we respond to misunderstanding by not losing heart and rejoicing that we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Have you ever done that? You ever realize, you ever come to a point in your life when you realize you're being mistreated, misrepresented, misunderstood, even persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ because you stand for the gospel and what God's Word teaches, and then stop and say, Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being mistreated for the name of Jesus Christ. And I see some of you looking at me like I'm pretty weird. You go, that's kind of strange to think about thanking God for being mistreated because of the name of Jesus Christ. But that is exactly the the example that we see again and again and again in the New Testament, don't we? People who said, absolutely, I've been mistreated, I've been beaten, I've been opposed. At every turn, says Paul, everywhere I've gone but I take great hope and great joy and comfort in the fact that I have been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. That is out of this world too, isn't it? We think about the love of God for us and how He would make His enemies His children. And for us to respond in a way like that is otherworldly also, isn't it? And that's why we need the work of the Holy Spirit in us to help us see that persecution is not something that that we resist necessarily, I'm not suggesting that you take yourself and throw yourself at the feet of people to be persecuted, but when persecution comes, let's not grovel and complain and moan and groan and cry. Let's say, thank you, Lord, for considering me worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And I'm not suggesting that that's easy. I'm telling you, I struggle with that. There have been times in my life when I felt like I was being persecuted and I've been wrongly represented. And I thought, God, this isn't right. Somebody needs to do something about this. And then I stop and wait and say, wait, you know, God's Word says that, that you're a better judge than I am. So I pray, God, judge them. Right? We do that. And then we go, but that's still not right. They mistreated me. So judge them, God. Get them good. And yet our attitude should be how humbling to be considered worthy To suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. That is not a response that quickly comes to our mind, is it? And so we need to yield before the Holy Spirit, don't we, when we come to His Word and realize that the world doesn't get us, but they didn't get Jesus either. And so we respond by not losing heart, but rejoicing that we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, like the apostles did. Like those who have gone before us through the centuries before us. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 16 gives us another glimpse of how we are to respond to the world's treatment. And just listen to this passage, would you? 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Interesting thought there. I'll leave you with that. I'll let you think about that. To test you. And those as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't be surprised as if something were you know, out of this world coming on you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And then verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, because you're serving Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That ought to be our response to being misunderstood, mistreated, misrepresented, persecuted by the world that doesn't get us because it didn't get Christ. Believers who truly live in anticipation of the imminent return of Christ, they hope in the love of God, not in the love of the world. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, oh, how we need to remember your word today and take great hope and encouragement in the fact that you do love us and you have adopted us as as your sons, as your daughters, into the... In the family of God, what a precious privilege it is to be called your child and to be named your child and be your child today. Oh Lord, help us to to place that far above anything the world dishes out. Lord, help us to understand that, that they didn't get Jesus Christ. They don't understand you, Lord. They're not going to understand that you're at work in us. Lord, help us to love them. Help us to love the world with the love of Christ. Help us to live in this world in such a way that they do see the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit at work in us. They may not be able to name it. They may not be able to understand it. But Lord, help us to live in obedience to Jesus Christ with our hope in the love of God. Not in the love of the world. Not hanging on how the world understands or doesn't understand us. Lord, help us to go into the week ahead and go into each day this week with a a new hope and a new attitude and a love of God for us that we have been given a privilege to live for Jesus Christ. And if we do suffer persecution, if we do suffer misunderstanding and misrepresentation, Lord, help us to do so with an attitude of joy. Difficulty we experience is hard. And we know that. And you intend for us to, to have the feelings that we have at times when we feel like we suffer and we have difficulty and we know the pain and the hardship, but Lord, help us to always bear up under what you're allowing us to go through because you would not, we know, allow us to go through this without the work of the Holy Spirit and it's strengthening us to endure it with the joy of the Lord that's our strength. And so Lord, help us to keep our hope in the love of God. Help us to love you from the bottom of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And, Lord, help us to love others just as you've demonstrated your love on us. In spite of how they treat us, in spite of how they misunderstand us, Lord, help us to not be concerned with that. Help us to concern ourselves, Father, with how we obey your commands and how we live for Jesus Christ on earth today as long as you tarry. As long as we await the return of Jesus Christ, Lord, help us to anticipate the return of Christ and to live for Your glory and to share the Gospel witness with a world who desperately needs to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.